we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Somebody once said, talk is cheap, except when Congress does it. I'm Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. With all the noise about culture wars, it seems to have taken up all the airwaves. Meanwhile, things that affect all of us in our day-to-day lives get little press. We've heard about high insulin prices and pharmaceutical companies semi-voluntarily reducing their prices. I say semi-voluntarily since drug makers faced a penalty from Medicaid if they raise the price higher than inflation. Let's face it, though, most of us don't take insulin, but nearly 70% of Americans take at least one prescription drug. Should we seriously assess whether Americans take too many drugs in the first place? Should the government cap prices? Will the drug companies still make enough money to continue aggressive research and development if the prices are capped? Another real issue is the shortage of healthcare workers at all levels. According to Senator Bernie Sanders' data, the nation faces a shortfall of about 450,000 nurses and 120,000 doctors in the coming years. And right now, we're 100,000 dentists short. Believe it or not, the government is in control of the number of physicians. Medicare funds expenses for residency slots, but these slots have been capped for over 20 years. And typical of a large government bureaucracy, they didn't notice that we'd need more primary care doctors because the population was aging. So what what are we supposed to do? And Partly because of the COVID lockdowns and economic damages, one in five adults have a mental health issue. And according to the CDC, suicides increased in 2021 with their highest level since 2018. And as our country's substance abuse problem snowballs, we'll need more psychiatry residents and other healthcare professionals in addiction medicine. So HHS, the Health and Human Services, recently finalized a rule that would add a thousand new Medicare-funded graduate education positions. Those are residents. But this is capped as 200 per fiscal year. How's that gonna make up the shortage? And then we've got all this consolidation in all these segments of healthcare chain of commerce. Insurance companies are integrated into pharmacies. Uh, anybody have Aetna and CVS? All the same parent company. Large health systems and private equity firms are buying up medical practices and hospitals. The government claims it's gonna look into these mergers because they've decreased competition. And of course that raises prices. One study showed that among 578 physician practices that were acquired by private equity firms in the last four years, the prices increased by 11%. But as 
federal intervention answer? My guest and I will discuss what's going on in Washington, D.C. on the health care front. Grace Marie Turner is the president of the Galen Institute, a nonprofit research organization focusing on achieving affordable health coverage and care for all Americans, especially the most vulnerable. She's the founder of the Health Policy Consensus Group that's a place for analysts from market-oriented think tanks around the country to get together and develop policy recommendations. Ms. Turner has also served as a member of the advisory board of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and as an appointee to the Medicaid Commission and as a congressional appointee to the Long-Term Care Commission. Welcome to the show, Grace Marie Turner. Dr. Singleton, what a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's just my honor. You're so knowledgeable. I'm going to ask you something that I have to say wasn't really on my original list, but you were on the Long-Term Care Commission. And lately, I've been thinking about this. One, I'm getting older. Two, my, my I took care of my mother at home. I was fortunate to be able to do that. And I remember the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, had had some long-term care provision, and I think everybody decided it was too expensive. So can you go over long-term care? I know that that's on people's minds, but just a little bit about what goes on, you know, insurance, does DC still care about it, all that kind of stuff. The long-term care is is an issue, I think, that only the um, that people who are very knowledgeable understand it's a problem because too many people believe that Medicare covers long-term care expenses. And as we know, it does not. Too many people, including people with means, will basically on paper impoverish themselves in order to qualify for Medicaid. So we basically have by default created the lowest common denominator long-term care system. And what happens when so many people are not buying long-term care insurance is you wind up with a too, too small of a population base and, and it's very, very expensive. My mother had long-term care insurance. She lived to be 96, but she had long-term care insurance that she had paid for for decades. And as she aged and into her 90s, the premiums became so expensive that she had to drop it just at the time that she would otherwise have needed it. So it's really, uh, it's an un it's unfortunate that public policy has so distorted the market for long-term care insurance. And you're right about the Affordable Care Act creating a long-term care program, but even Democrats said, this is a Ponzi scheme. This is never going to work. There's no way we're going to pay for it. And so it was repealed. And that's the reason, actually, that the commission to which I was appointed was created by Congress to say, okay, well, what else can we do? And we had a commission, I think there were about 14 of us from both sides of the aisle. We worked for months and created a report that had about 70 recommendations on what we can do for long-term care. And you're right, Dr. Singleton, that the um, personnel shortage in the health sector is a major problem that, that 
that is very relevant to long-term care. Yeah. We came up and unfortunately it sort of sits on a shelf like too many other commission reports and collects dust, but it's, it's an issue that I think in some ways Congress has just decided to not deal with and it's terribly unfortunate. Well, I'll say it is, and given the age of everybody in Congress, they ought to pay attention to it. But I have a feeling, as you said, people with means can somehow deal with it. But most people can't afford to take care of an aging parent because they have to go out and work, too. So how are they going to take care of the parent? So if you... If you want to have somebody on, there's a man named Stephen Moses who runs the Center for Long-Term Care Reform, and he has been studying this issue for decades. And I would highly recommend that you invite Steve to join you to talk, to take a deeper dive into the options and what Congress might do if it were encouraged or states to address this issue, but I'd be happy to put you in touch with them. Steve is really an authority on this issue. Well, I will. And thank you for just uh, briefly giving a few words on it. And, And at least it alerts people that it's something they need to look into. And if they're young enough, there's sort of a sweet spot of getting long-term care insurance where if you have fixed premiums, that you get it young enough where the premium will be low, but you don't want to spend your money and buy it when you're too young. So it's exactly right. Things are so important. And some people have long-term care insurance for their employer that they can take with them. So I strongly encourage people, if you have that option, do continue to keep your long-term care insurance because government is not going to be able to pay the bills of existing commitments it has in its healthcare programs, much less ones that that are not on the books. And something you mentioned was that it was a Ponzi scheme. I don't think most people realize when Social Security, and of course, all these programs are offshoots of Social Security. When it was started back in the 1930s, there were 35 workers per beneficiary. Do you know how many workers per beneficiary there are now? I think it's something like 3.5. I think it's even smaller than that and, and going lower. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it is, that's one of the reasons it's not sustainable. There simply are not enough working people to just sustain the costs of, of Medicaid and Medicare, particularly benefits. Wow. I know we don't want to start on such a downer, but this is healthcare and we've got to talk about it. So let's, Talk about this worker shortage. Certainly a lot of physicians had retired early because of the electronic medical records. They were sick of prior authorizations, meaning you had to ask the insurance company or the government if you could do a certain treatment or prescribe a certain drug. What kind of solutions have uh, has your group come up with for this doctor and nursing shortage? Yeah, interestingly, I was on a, a call maybe 10 days ago with a um with a group that is putting together a plethora of recommendations should a 
president be elected in 2024 that puts conservative free market ideas forward. Uh, Paragon Health Institute, it was actually started by one of my senior fellows, and they're doing a paper on, on this issue and the, and the personnel shortage in the health sector. And I said, you know, you really, there are all these different suggestions about what we need to do, including increasing the number of residents uh, available. I said, has this occurred to you that one of the things that we need to do in order to keep people in the profession and to attract young people is to to, to, to get rid of the unbelievable paperwork burdens that we that we subject particularly physicians to. That they, you know, after working an eight, 10, sometimes 12 hour day, they still have two or three hours worth of paperwork that they have to do that night. It is a nightmare. No one knows better than you do, Dr. Singleton, what you and your colleagues have put up with. And I said, that has to be step one. Make this an attractive profession again for people to to be able to spend their time taking care of patients instead of all of this useless paperwork that they're forced to do. I tell you, here, here, and everybody would agree. And it obviously computers are fine and they've they've been a big advancement, etc. But to mandate certain electronic medical records and mandate certain vendors and and the cost to keep it up for smaller practices. It's what made some of the older guys just say, forget it. I can't invest thousands and thousands of dollars into this as well as the maintenance and upkeep and all that sort of thing. Not to mention people kind of like me who are sort of old fashioned, like that face-to-face, looking at the patient, not worrying about the computer, scribble a few notes so you make sure you get it right, and having a written record on the patient that really reflects what your conversation was about, not a bunch of checkboxes that as more people are discovering are causing the cut and paste fever and having mistakes because As you point out at the end of the day, having to do all that paperwork, then they cut and paste something from another visit into the next visit. And it's just a big mess. And it wrecks having the doctor and patient just kind of looking at each other when the doctor's sitting there looking at the computer. Well, and that's what patients want. They want the doctor to be able to focus on them. Of course, that's that's what both sides want. And that's where you get the third, fourth, fifth party payment system with all these other people virtually in the in the clinical um in the clinical room. And and they are totally distorting the practice of medicine. I spoke not too long ago to a group, uh, Lee Gross's uh, Docs for Patient Care group about, and it was a group of, I don't know, maybe 500 physicians that were all wanting to move to direct primary care. And I said, Direct primary care physicians are the only happy doctors I know. And it's because they don't have to put up with all this crazy bureaucratic rigmarole. And they are able to take care of their patients, be advocates for their patients, help them find the specialists that they need when they need um, advanced care, but mostly really working to help keep their patients happy and healthy. 
It's, that's where we need to be going with a system where you're returning power to doctors and patients. And we have a lot of suggestions and proposals about how to do that at the Galen Institute and with other our allied organizations. But but putting government in charge of solving this is never going to work. Well, we'll get back to some of your solutions after the break. And for right now, I have to talk about my old friend, CofixRx. Now, COVID is sort of fading into the woodwork. It's starting to become what we call endemic, where it's just going to be around and we can expect to just hear about COVID and we'll get more variants just like common cold. And hopefully it will wind down to be more like a common cold. But one of the good things that came out of COVID was people looking for a way to treat it before people got terribly sick. And CofixRx was invented by American doctors. And it's basically a simple idea. Most bacteria and viruses that we get sick from come through our nose. So this is a nasal spray. It's got iodine, xylitol, both antiviral agents squirted up your nose a couple squirts and it can help stop these germs in their tracks now of course we all know nothing is a hundred percent foolproof but if we can cut down on the number of viruses or bacteria in that first two to five days when they're multiplying we might not get quite as sick so there's a little button on the website and just push it on, CofixRx, check it out. You can read more about it. You can get it locally, or you can get it through the website. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep 
sleep deep and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Now, back to our show. So, Miss Turner. I want to ask you, before we do a, a whole thing on all sorts of solutions, about drug shortages. This is something that truly is on people's minds and wonder what's going to happen, how are they going to get their drugs. We're having issues with China. We know most of the drugs come from China. What's going to happen? What can you do? And what can we do about the prices? I've given you a mouthful, so go for it. Well, I will tell you that um, even as I see healthcare sort of moving back to a second tier issue in Congress right now, they are absolutely focused on prescription drugs. And as you know, last August, Congress passed the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is very misnamed, but it is the first time that, that the federal government is going to put billions of dollars behind setting up a regime to put price controls on pharmaceuticals. It's working through Medicare first, but um, private payers expect to be able to, to get the same prices. And it's basically going to become a European price control system. And we know what has happened in Europe, that at this, as they decide that the price of a drug is basically its manufacturing cost, not its development cost, that the innovation dries up. Most of the drugs in this in the world today are created based upon by companies that are based in the United States, use the United States as their platform, because it was the last major developed country that did not have price controls on drugs. So what did that mean? That meant that we were paying the R&D costs for the world. And finally, Congress just said, we're not doing that anymore. Well, many of us are very concerned that what this is going to mean is many fewer new drugs. Dr. Tom Philipson, who used to be um, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House and now a professor at the University of Chicago, has done some research to indicate that even though Congress estimates that that about $250 billion will be saved over 10 years by the price controls that will be imposed on Medicare prescription drugs. He said that the actual cost in life years, drugs that are not developed, people dying early, is in the trillions, the tens of trillions of dollars, in the loss of not being able to have access to drugs that are not uh, available or not created at all. And I think that's one of the things that the Congressional Budget Office, he said, they said, well, we'll only have about a dozen fewer drugs. Already, many few pharmaceutical companies are, are pulling new drugs 
from their research tables because they say if they're going to put price controls on these drugs and basically only allow us to charge what the the price of an older generic there's no there's no way that we can raise the money to pay for the R&D so we are on a not and not a good place on prescription drugs and as you say also many of the drugs and many of the raw materials actually come from China so there is a big focus on trying to to revive the US pharmaceutical manufacturing industry uh, in as they are trying to cripple the US R&D uh, capacity. So we are we are not in a good place. For a long time the health policy legislation focused on on a number of other issues primarily the uninsured to larger issues of cost, insurance, et cetera. But now they've been focusing on prescription drugs. And I think that they are about to foul that up in much the same way that they have the rest of the health sector that has led, Dr. Singleton, as you mentioned earlier, to a lot of consolidation because the more regulation, the more rules you have, the less small businesses are able to comply. So doctors are, the the established doctors, as you say, have been forced to sell their practices to hospitals or to go out of business. And younger doctors can't afford to set up the the expensive technology and and staffing requirements to be able to comply with all this. So we are we are not in a good place in our health sector, and it is absolutely incumbent on us to begin to move toward building on some of the success points of our health sector because it is if we stay on the same track, I am not optimistic, Doctor Singleton. Well. With these drugs, what do you think will happen? Do you think that um, with shortages that the government will just decide to ration drugs? I mean, already when I think about uh, what Ezekiel Emanuel and his idea that, yeah, I want to croak when I'm 75, if he decides that that's the case for the rest of us, uh, will we only be able to get, let's say, some of the basic generic medicines for high blood pressure rather than some of the newer ones that only work for some people. Some people, the basic ones don't work that well. That's why we've got all the newer fancy ones. And, and that's especially true with psychotropic drugs. You're right. And, and it makes me wonder, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, do we really want the government deciding who gets what pills and when? Well, and that's really, that's what happens. We we already know how where this goes because we can see other European countries that have already taken this track. They use quality adjusted life years to decide whether or not your life is worth getting this particular drug. And they've got formulas to decide what your life is worth. They don't talk about it much, but that's where we're going. This uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers, who's the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee this year and a wonderful um, conservative who has a, has a child, I believe a son with Downs, and she is so much a fighter to make sure that everybody has equal access to the to the best drugs and the best medical care that's available. But qualities basically do say, we're going to put a price on your life and decide whether or not you have access to that. I remember talking actually with a physician in the UK some time ago 
who treated both, as most of them do, patients within that are enrolled in the National Health Service and patients that can afford to pay privately. He was an oncologist. And he said, it pains me that I will have one patient walk in the door with a certain kind of cancer. And all I can prescribe for that are the older generics. And a patient with private insurance comes in and I can prescribe the newer drugs that I know will have a much better chance of success and survival. But he said, I am constrained by the NHS from not even telling the first patient that other newer drugs are available. Wow. And that's where we are now. And I tell you, if it weren't for blogs and the internet, I'm sure a lot of Americans wouldn't know some of the drugs that are out there. Even though I rail about some of these uh, ads on TV for various drugs, ask your doctor if you have kidney disease, don't take this. You know, it's kind of like, right. I, I would think your doctor would <laughs> already know. I know, but this is what. <laughs> but at least it makes people aware and perhaps they will ask the doctor. The question is, are doctors going to be in the position depending on if the patient is insured by the government or private insurance, whether it's like, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah. It looks like a great drug, but Medicare doesn't pay for it. If that's going to be the new stock answer. And it's a little scary because it makes it a two tiered system just, you know, you've got to have the money and we we don't want that. And they keep on talking about making the health system equitable. But how can it be if you decide to cut costs? Who's Who are the people who are going to get screwed? Well, and that really gets down to the fundamental question about who do you want to make decisions about your health care and the health care of your family? Do you want it to be you and your doctor, or do you want it to be some remote bureaucrat that thinks that he or she knows better than you do? That's really the, the dividing line, I think, in the policy world between the elitists who think they know best and those of us who believe that doctors and patients should make these decisions, and we need to build a structure to support that. One of the things that comes up that all that sounds wonderful and very good, but the question is, what do you do if you are poor and don't have a job, so you don't have employer-sponsored insurance, and you haven't saved money, there's no vehicle for saving any money? to pay for health costs. And, we, and we've got to discuss these health costs, I guess, in two sections. One is doctor costs, day-to-day, keeping yourself healthy or having illnesses that are taken care of as an outpatient versus going to the hospital. But you have to be a gazillionaire in order to afford a hospital visit. So what do we do about this? Well, first of all, I mean that's that's a that is a um, master's thesis question, you know? <laughs> but but I think it's important to recognize that that those of us on the right side of the spectrum who believe in patients and doctors, markets, competition, our focus is how do you we take care of the people who are falling through the cracks, people who make too much to qualify for Medicaid or programs legitimately for lower income people. 
who don't have either the resources to purchase insurance on their own or good employer-based coverage. The people in what I call the Galen Gap have always been our focus. What do we do to help people who really need help? First of all, we need to give them many more options. We need to provide resources to help them purchase coverage, but but we want it to be the coverage that works for them, not something that the government tells them, this is all you can have, take it or leave it. And that's what that's the, the case now with Medicaid. Medicaid's a terrible program. It's the worst healthcare program in the country, and yet more than 90 million people in America are on Medicaid, where you basically have to go to a hospital emergency room to see, find a doctor who can see you. But, and, and, but when, when you look at all of the programs that have been created over the last 20 years, the number of people who are uninsured, about 30 million, but the great majority, 95% of them have access to a program. They're just not signed up. Either they're eligible for Medicaid, they're not signed up. They're eligible for coverage at work, they're not signed up. Could be the state children's health insurance program. Most people have access to coverage. They need to sign up for the coverage that's available. We don't need Medicare for all, a la Bernie Sanders. We need to make sure that people enroll in the programs that they're eligible for. But the second part of your question is equally important. How can we get costs down? Well, we have looked at what happens when the government starts pumping money into programs with Obamacare, for example. The, the price of premiums and the, have doubled in the individual small group market since Obamacare went into effect. And, and deductibles have gone even higher while networks of physicians and hospitals have shrunk even more. So clearly government controlling this is not working. The only thing that works is competition. And that's where maybe in our next segment, we can talk about how we can make competition work in order to be able to get prices down, expand access to coverage, give people more choices of coverage that they want and devolve power away from Washington through the states to doctors and patients. Well, I can't wait till our third segment. One of the things in having this discussion, I think back to my father who started practicing in, let's see, 1945 and So he was in practice for 20 years when Medicaid came in and he had a regular GP office, one woman working in the office, and that was it. His uh, patient records, of course, were handwritten patient records. And when Medi-Cal in California, it was Medi-Cal, came out, he didn't take it. And people thought, oh, how awful. He's not going to help poor people. And it was like he was helping poor people all along. He charged people what they could afford. And every Wednesday, he and many of his colleagues would do some sort of free care, go to free clinic, this sort of thing. And somehow that concept has gotten kind of lost and and it kind of goes along with electronic records, all these things that are separating the doctor from the patient and the doctor from having a heart. You know, this whole 
having the government do it instead of you make the sacrifice, you, the doctor, make the sacrifice and connect with the patient. And I think the patient will appreciate the so-called charity care a lot more when it comes face to face and there's no government intermediary. You know, I, I have always been so amazed and impressed with physicians' ability to give so much more than their their practice. They're already working often 10 and 12 hours a day in the practice, you and your colleagues. And yet they will volunteer, they will provide charity care, they will engage in their profession to try to improve the system for others. You have really, I think, often a superhuman ability to work and to to be productive. But the but the government gets in your way. And it if if you want to provide charity care, I had a physician friend in uh, Cal in Florida, who has a private practice and specializes in pulmonary diseases. He had a patient come in, takes Medicaid as much as he can. And this patient had really complicated issues. He said, "This if this were a private paying patient, the bill would have been about $750. He applied to Medicaid, staffs in all the paperwork. Months later, he gets a check for six cents. Now, wouldn't he have rather just provided that care on a charity basis rather than go through all the Medicaid paperwork hoops to get a check for six cents? What an insult. Well, it totally is. And I can validate that that's not an exaggeration. I once did anesthesia for oh, a vascular surgery that was about four hours and I was paid $6. So these, these things do happen in our, in our final segment. We will go into more solutions and some examples of free market healthcare that is working and will continue to work. For right now, it's time to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And as you know, we're always a beat ahead. We've got the free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa. We're on every weekday at 5 with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern and on iHeartRadio, 8 a.m. the next morning. The part I like the best is the shows go direct to the podcast in 24 hours. And they're on lots of the podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy. Bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. The great thing I think when this show started, gee, it's been over a year now and we're really excited about it, is we've got a different doctor on every day. Monday is with me, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we have concerned doctors, Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud. Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan, and Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And remember, we also have Nurses Out Loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern with their encore at 10 p.m. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. 
Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. So, back to solution time. All right, Miss Turner, you're going to give us the answers that you've developed with all these folks that you get together at your policy meetings. And what have you come up with that you think will solve so many of these issues? Well, of course, there's no silver bullet, but I work with dozens of colleagues from the free market think tank community. You mentioned in your introduction that I facilitate a group called the Health Policy Consensus Group. I've been doing that for as long as the Galen Institute's been in existence, more than 25 years, trying to convene people who believe that we can solve many of these problems by devolving power away from Washington to doctors and patients and focusing on those who most need our help. We've come up with a a proposal called the Healthcare Choices Proposal. Healthcarechoices2020.org is the website. And it's, it's dozens of proposals to help restore the doctor patient relationship, get Washington out of the business of micromanaging our health sector and actually help the states to give them both resources and more authority to do what they've done for decades, and that is regulate their health insurance markets in order to be able to provide more choices for people than Washington's cookie cutter insurance policies that or or programs that right now are, are just crushing our health sector. So healthcare choices 2020. But the the core philosophy is this. Whenever, and I hate to use the word Republicans, but in this partisan world, the Republicans are Democrats that are in control. Republicans have passed a number of health policy proposals that all have been successful. Health savings accounts, they had now are about 30 million people in the United States that are able to put a part of what they other what the money that they otherwise would have sent to health insurance companies into an account that they control tax deductible money spend it on health care 
be able to have savings that they've accumulated over time to be able to give them a cushion. The Medicare prescription drug benefit is another one that I think is is based on the philosophy that we can have private plans competing to provide in when the bill was first passed, uh, two, at least two drugs in 150 different categories. And patients can, seniors can see what plans are offering, what the premium price is, are they providing the drugs that I need? If not, I'm going to go to a different plan. That has is, is one of the only, probably the only, healthcare program that is coming in less, far less than the Congressional Budget Office expected it would cost when it was passed in 2003. So it saves money, it gives people choices, it forces competition, but forces competition on something that then allows the patient to make their choices. So those are those are that's the structure and the framework of what we believe could work with other programs. There's no reason, for example, that if somebody is on Medicaid and eligible for Medicaid, that they can't take basically the take that money as a as an allocation toward buying into their employer policy. And if they have a spouse, that also has that offer, they should be able to combine that money to be able to buy a private plan of their choice, not something that government says, well, either take Medicaid or don't take your employer insurance, and then therefore you're uninsured. Give people more choices. There's plenty of money in the system right now. The money that's going to pay for the subsidies for Obamacare subsidies in the you know tens and hundreds of billions of dollars toward narrower plans that cost more money that have higher and higher deductibles allow people to have that I shouldn't use the word voucher but that's really what it is it's basically like school choice for healthcare that you should be able to take the value of any subsidy that you're uh, that is you're available that's you're eligible for and be able to use that to purchase into a private plan of your choice some people will want an HMO others may decide hey i want a direct primary care practice but i know i need a major medical coverage so i will purchase that as well with this money there are so many options of things that the private sector would create if we would get away from washington thinking it has to micromanage all of this but basically giving people and and, and employers increasingly right now through something called icra the independent, what's it called, individual choice um, health reimbursement arrangement. An employer now can say, you know, I'm spending five, $6,000 a year sending that off to the health insurance company for a health plan that you don't like. If you would like to have me allocate that same money to a different plan of your choice that's not one that I, the employer, am picking, but that you, the employee, pick. I could do that on the same 
tax-free basis. People don't even know that's available, but it's available now. What we need are many more choices in the marketplace. So that will be an attractive option for them. And once again, to people who work for, for small employers that, that have that same allocation, they could combine that to get a family policy instead of having the family divided up on a number of different policies, the kids on chip, one parent on Medicaid, another one uninsured or with an employer plan. There's Let families be together. It's a matter of aggregating the money. And we have a lot of recommendations of how we can do it, but it's basically requires the philosophy that you know best, not Washington. And that's something that's really hard for somebody like Bernie Sanders and others to get their arms around. Well, what do you do about getting more insurers in the market? Uh, Back in the day, what, even as late as early 1980s, there were, what, over 800, as they call them, products out there for health insurance. And now we've got a handful of companies that have cornered the market and all the policies are the same form. And and so how do we get back to that era of choice, even in insurance policies? It's exactly the same thing that's happened with doctors, hospitals, and uh, doctors and hospitals and clinics. Everybody, the the government, when the federal government's in in charge of this, it doesn't want a lot of players. It wants to deal with just a few big players that are in the game and that are willing to play by their rules. They don't want all these small competitors because that creates problems for them. But there is so much energy out there of people who have ideas. I talk to state legislators all the time. How about if we were to do X, Y, and Z? Wouldn't that work better? And the answer is almost always yes, but they can't do it because Washington rules and regulations don't allow it. So it's deregulation of our health sector, giving the resources that we currently are aggregating in Washington, distributing that in a fair formula to the states to give them the resources to support health insurance for people, a wide variety of policies, then just like everything in in the earth, it will grow. There are people out there with ideas that want to make this happen, but they need they need a constituency. They need an audience. And right now, there's no market for this because the only policies that can be sold are Washington's cookie cutter policies. That's And it's increasingly not what people want. So we need to let a thousand flowers bloom, let people come forward, but it's not going to happen until individuals have control over the money so they can start making choices instead of being forced into the choices that Washington is making for them. The thing that's interesting, I hearing everything you're saying, And we look at uh, what, for example, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, that's a cash-based surgery center, whose prices come in at sometimes half, if not lower, for many procedures to the point where there are actually companies who will fly their employees to Oklahoma to get the surgery, pay it in cash, and it still ends up being less than had they paid ridiculously high premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. 
Well, and to that point, if we would lift the ban on physician-owned hospitals, we would have many more of those around the country. And once again, those are happy physicians because they are in charge of deciding the equipment that they want, the the personnel that they want to work with, the anesthesiologists that they feel they um, that works they work best with, it, allow doctors to practice medicine in the way they know is best for their patients. Give them that freedom and flexibility, and there would be such a transformation in our health sector. But right now, thank heavens for the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. But there should be dozens, if not hundreds, of competitors to them in the country. And there aren't because of federal law banning the creation of new of new hospitals. It's just ridiculous. And there's no reason on earth to ban something that would improve patient care other than it's the road to government control over a major, major part of our lives. And it's not just that. It's that the big hospitals that have such influence in Washington, I mean, they they are basically the placeholders for control because they don't want the competition. Right. And it's so their hold over the political establishment keeps Congress from doing the right thing and lifting the moratorium on physician owned hospitals. Well, and certainly at the state level, that's where those certificate of need laws come in, because the guy who has the money has the lobbyists. And they're the ones who are saying, oh, no, don't grant that. We, our facility provides all that. We don't need another facility. Well, of course, they don't want another one. They don't want a competitor who can undercut them in prices and quality. Right. Exactly right. It's uh, that the cartel and the bigger it gets and the more reliant these big companies get on on Washington's um basically open spigot, then the harder it is to push back. It's got to start from the bottom up. That's why I'm so thankful for things like direct primary care, sharing ministries, surgery center of Oklahoma, health savings account, individual coverage, HRAs, the structure of the prescription drug benefit. All those are anchor points for us to build on, to show people that yes, you can have choice and competition in the health sector that can give you more choices, better quality and lower costs. Uh, You said it. And I think quality is certainly what patients are looking for. And just because the price is low does not mean the quality is poor. In fact, they're showing in many cases where these hospital groups have consolidated and you do have cookie cutter algorithms and many times patients are immediately shunted to a uh, physician's assistant rather than the doctor when they should have gone directly to the doctor. All these things are occurring in these big systems that the quality, and there's studies that show this, not just my opinion, the quality in many cases has gone down. Yes. Tragically, yes. And So patients beware, bigger is not always better. And indeed for primary care, a small primary care practice can give you the personal service that you need because so much of medicine 
is that relationship and giving you time to talk to the doctor. They always used to say in psychiatry that the most important information came out in the last five minutes of the visit. And these days, (laughs) the visits in the big healthcare systems are seven minutes long. You want to be at a doctor who you do have time for your deep, dark inner secrets to finally come out. And maybe that's the cause of your chronic pain or chronic asthma. So many things just depend on a solid relationship with the doctor. That's so right. So right, Dr. Singleton. And I will tell you that it was the founding reason for the Galen Institute to restore the doctor-patient relationship. And I and my colleagues are not giving up. Well, thank you. And thank you for coming on the show. Will you please let uh, our listeners know how they can see the Galen Institute, find it online and read more about your policy ideas? I invite you to take a look at our website at galen, G-A-L-E-N.org, after the first century Greek physician. Um, and also you will see a button on the bottom left of the newsletter to sign, of the, of the website to sign up for our newsletters. I do a, a weekly newsletter to tie what's happening in Washington to the ideas we've been talking about today about how we can restore the doctor-patient relationship. I think you'll particularly like my newsletter from Friday called uh, Henry is Wrong. So take a look at galen.org to our latest newsletter. Well, thanks again for coming on, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Singleton. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. And for our listeners, just so you know, we do have our new feature that's questions and answers. So if you have any questions, just send them in to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse, and we'll get you an answer. It could be for the host or for a guest, but first names are fine, and we will get back to you. And I'd just like to say to everybody, whether you agree or have other opinions, share the show anyway. And until next week, Say it loud, I'm free and I'm proud.